everybody. I'm Ashwin. I'm Raj. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. This is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Today, we are excited to discuss the management of new diagnosis of primary myelofibrosis. We have an expert, Dr. Alapta Ferry, Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Teferi, thank you so much for joining us. Before we start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Yes, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. My name is Ayala Teferi, and I am a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic, and I have been at the Mayo Clinic since 1986 believe it or not. And my interest, obviously, I deal with all of hematology. I'm interested in everything in hematology, and I see patients with any kind of hematological issues. But my primary interests are myeloid neoplasms and pretty much acute myeloid leukemia, stem cell transplant. I did transplant until about 16 years ago. And then I branched out into chronic myeloid neoplasms, primarily myeloproliferative neoplasms, but also myelodysplastic syndrome, chronic myeloid leukemia, and in particular, systemic mastocytosis and eosinophilic disorders. So I, I do all this, which is a lot of fun, but I guess people probably identify me with myeloproliferative neoplasms. What sparked your interest in myeloproliferative neoplasms, especially? It looks like at the beginning, you were pretty undifferentiated, and later on your in your career, you were focusing on myeloproliferative neoplasms. Why, why MPNs? I love that question because I'm going to answer it honestly. Right? There was a mentor of mine, Murray Silverstein, who, who was the world expert on myelofibrosis. He wrote a book on it at the Mayo Clinic. And Murray, unfortunately, died in 1998. But he, he liked me and he allowed me to look into database and, and patients with ET, PV, and myelofibrosis. He allowed me to be first author on papers that I prepared. He opened the doors for me to have a network with other people and so forth. And at that point, when I looked at his interest in me, and then I ask my question, what is the opportunity in doing something good for the patients, but also standing out because it's a very crowded field? Is it in lymphoma? And I say, no. Is it in myeloma? Probably not. Is it in CLL? Which, by the way, I did the phase one, phase two studies with Claribin in CLL that I was published in JCO a long time ago. I said, no. So just... And then I said, how about myeloproliferative neoplasm? And I said, uh-huh. Here's an opportunity. I have the world's grandmaster in this field. I can attach my name with him. And then I have this huge clinical database at the Mayo Clinic. And I said, I could do something with this. That was it. Looking at the opportunity rather than what is it that I like to do. Now, that's the wrong way in approaching life. Do what you're very good at and what the opportunity is there for. That's the way to succeed 
in academics. And we would love to bring you on to talk more about career development. I'm sure many of our listeners would be interested in that. Maybe in the future episodes, uh, we will do an episode on career development. Absolutely. So with that, let us jump right in. Uh, we'll start with the case and you can walk us through how would you approach this patient and we can discuss the data as we go. So this is a 65 year old female with no significant past medical history, presented with symptoms of fatigue, occasional night sweats, pruritus, unintentional weight loss, and poor appetite for the past six months. Blood counts show a white blood cell count of 3.1 and a hemoglobin of 10.8 and a platelet of 122,000. On examination, she had a marked enlargement on discussion with her hematologist because of this cytopenias and splenomegaly. She underwent a bone marrow aspiration and biopsy, which demonstrated a hypercellular marrow with megakaryocyte proliferation and ATPR with a reticulin fibrosis. By grading system, she has MF2 fibrosis and a normal karyotype and the myeloid NGS panel show a JAK2 V617F mutation with a variant allele frequency of 23%. How do you approach this case? It just looks like a new diagnosis of primary myelofibrosis. Can you please walk us through your thought process and the diagnostic test you order and how would you decide on the treatment? nice case this is a young woman okay this is a young woman who presented with mild pancytopenia along with not so mild constitutional symptoms and marked splenomegaly and usually when you're presented with that remember these patients don't come to the hematologist first they come to the internist or the family physician and they see the anemia, and they usually are good enough to order a peripheral blood smear. And usually the smear in this disease shows what we call as leukoerythroblastic picture, meaning you see teardrop-shaped red cells, immature cells, like nucleated red blood cells, metamyelocytes, and what have you. When you see this, there is a bone marrow infiltrative process. And obviously, with the big spleen, clearly, the hematologist should think myelofibrosis first. Obviously, you can have other infiltrative processes or what have you. So the bone marrow was done. And as you very nicely said, it showed reticulum fibrosis. And then the patient has a JAK2 mutation. So you really got the diagnosis. This is a JAK2 mutated myelofibrosis. And since she did not have an antecedent history of essential thrombocythemia or polycythemia vera, you call this as primary myelofibrosis. Now, when you get this, that's the easy part. That's the easy part. The hematologist needs to understand this genetically. The most important thing in prognosticating the outcome of patients with myelofibrosis is genetics. That's the most important. And so when it comes to genetics, 
when you have a patient like this, the first thing you have to say is genetics, genetics, cytogenetics, and mutations. Very important. Because they will tell you what the prognosis of this patient is. And then they will, it will, they will also tell you what's the best way to treat them, to manage them. So when it comes to cytogenetics, do remember that about a third of patients will present with an abnormal karyotype. When it comes to mutations, remember that about 80% of patients will have mutations other than JARC2. So remember, the majority of these patients have something. And not all abnormal karyotype is bad. And not all mutations are bad. So it is up to you to look it up, which are good and which are bad. Now, in general, it's best to just Google this information rather than trying to understand what it is, this and that, and that. It's always important to just quickly Google and find out what are the good mutations and so forth. But in order to help you, because at the end of the day, you need a prognostication here. And for prognosticating this patient, what we use now is a mutation-enhanced international prognostic scoring system version 2. Okay, MIPS V2. Basically, it's a prognostic system that combines clinical variables, karyotype, and mutations all together. Once you do that, you will come up with five risk categories, with the best being very low risk. We're talking about a 10-year survival of 90%. 90% or low risk, which is not bad, 50%. But then after that, you get an intermediate risk and then high risk and very high risk. Now we're talking about very high risk, nobody surviving after three years. Or high risk, five-year survival, not very high. It's the same thing. So this is important to tell you what risk can be justified in terms of a treatment approach. Now, everybody worries about how complicated these prognostication systems are. As physicians, we only need two, three things to tell us which patient should go to transplant and which one we can play around with all these subpar drugs. It's very easy as clinician. All you need to do is Look at the genetics. If it is bad, let's go to transplant. I don't need to know whether somebody lives for five months versus eight months, okay? All right? I don't care. Or 12 months. I want to know whether somebody's got a chance to live 10 years. That's my the importance. So you need to know that. So I will tell you a very good way that I have in prognosticating these patients. Very simple. And I am going to publish this. The first question you ask, is this patient genetically blessed? That's it. What are genetically blessed? In order to be genetically blessed, the first thing you have to have is a type 1 color mutation. <laughs> if you don't have a type 1 color mutation, you're not genetically blessed. There is no way you're going to have a 90% tenure survival. The best you can do is probably 50% tenure survival. So type 1 color, that's, a, that's so easy, okay? So you say, okay, you got type 1 color. Now let me make sure that your karyotype is not bad and you don't have bad mutations. Otherwise, you're fine. On the other yeah. hand, 80% of patients don't have a type 1 color, okay? So 
you you are left with everybody else whose best survival, a 10-year survival, is about 50%. So then the question is, what's the next question you ask? The next question you ask, okay, I'm going to stay with genetics. Do you have bad karyotype? Do you have bad mutations? Everybody knows what the bad karyotypes are because they're similar. Like leukemia and MDS, they're complex, yeah. minus seven. Everybody knows what that okay? yeah. The bad mutations in this disease are ASXL1, SRSF2, okay? and U2AF1. These are the bad mutations. If you don't have those, then you can be a low risk and you may not need to be transplanted. You might not have to go there. But otherwise, if you have bad chromosomes, or you have bad mutations that you probably relegated to transplant. Otherwise, if you want to know exactly where you're at, Google the information. Don't try to memorize <laughs> it because you can't. Sure. So that's the first thing I will do and to see whether the patient can, should I go to transplant or not. That's the first thing you have to go through. Sure. One more practical question I see when looking at the bone marrow biopsies for these patients is differentiating between prefibrotic and fibrotic myelofibrosis. Why it is important clinically differentiating these two conditions? Because even in WHO, there is a separate classification for prefibrotic and fibrotic. Why it is clinically relevant? So if your diagnosis is myelofibrosis, okay? If you make a diagnosis of myelofibrosis, if you're comfortable in making that diagnosis, morphologically, yeah. genetically, and so there's no difference. See, okay. here's the problem. The problem is it's not the name. It's the genetics. Okay. Sure. I don't care if it is prefibrotic. Do you have bad chromosomes? Do you have bad mutations? Do you have mm -hmm. significant anemia? I don't care whether you call it prefibrotic or not. I am only interested in the consequences of the genetic alteration that this patient has. Everything that you see, my friend, everything, the severity of anemia, everything is a result of this genetic abnormalities. Therefore, within the context of that diagnosis, I don't care. Now, where does prefibrotic come into play? There are some patients with who present with high platelet count, for all the world, they look like essential thrombocytemia. Okay? They look like essential thrombocytemia. And some of those patients might actually have prefibrotic myelofibrosis. Now, here's the thing. If they look like ET, they're probably gonna do as good as ET. I don't care what the specific diagnosis is. Remember this. If they look like ET, meaning they don't have anemia, they don't have marked splenomegaly, and you're thinking this is ET, that means those patients are going to be good regardless. Okay, you can tell me in 15 years, the risk of leukemic transformation is 5% as opposed to be 1%. Good for you. Enjoy yourself. 5% is still low. In other words, you're not going to transplant this patient just because the diagnosis is prefibrotic myelofibrosis rather than essential trauma. So just use your common sense and say, if this patient looks as good as ET, prognosis is probably going to be as good. Now, for those people who are purists, you can say, oh, yeah, and by the way, the 15-year survival might be a little different, significant, there's a paper, blah, 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 blah. It does not have as significant a practical value 
as it sounds. Am I making sense? Yep. Yeah, I wanted to ask a clarifying question. Do you, as, is there any patient where, whether it's pre-fibrotic or fibrotic, that would change your decision making, or you really treat them exactly the same, given it's a specific mutation? Beautiful, exactly the same. Now, the only difference is this. The only difference is this. First of all, I don't like to do a bone marrow examination unless I have to. I feel like the peripheral blood smear is a mirror for the bone marrow. I can see in the peripheral blood what might be going on in the bone marrow. So, for example, I look at the peripheral blood smear. Underwhelming, right? Just high platelets, no anemia. The red cell indices are fine. The serum LDH, by the way, is normal. Okay, I don't see anything to suggest an infiltrative process. LDH is normal. I don't need to do a bone marrow examination. I can make a working diagnosis of ET and manage it accordingly. Now, the peripheral blood smear might give me some indication that I might be dealing with pre If you know how to read the peripheral blood smear, if you know how to interpret the peripheral blood test findings, then you know what's going on. The serum LDH will be increased. You'll see some dacryocytes, maybe not. That's fine. Anemia, you shouldn't see anemia with ET. When you see these things, then you know, ah, you know what, this might not be ET, okay? Now, the question is, would you manage it differently? No, but when you communicate to the patient about the prognosis of this disease, you're not going to be jumping up and down and say, listen, it's like ET, near normal life expectancy. This is a little different. So you might have something a little more sinister than ET, and we just have to follow you closely. That's it. Otherwise, the management is exactly the same. Fantastic. You briefly mentioned about the prognostic scoring systems, and we have seen various prognostic scoring systems over the years. Initially, we started with EPS and EPS Plus, DEPS, DEPS Plus, and most recently, like you were mentioning about MEPS, which includes mutations as well as the karyotype. One practical question I've seen is, all these scoring systems do not include spleen size or spleen measurements into the prognostic scoring system even though the spleen size correlates with the survival it also correlates with the response to the treatment as well we use that as a surrogate marker but we do not use it in the prognostic scoring system why do why, do, why is that so, people who like to publish okay can always find something, okay? They can always find. If you realize in MDS and myelofibrosis, the prognostic systems have become more and more complicated and less practical. That's the truth. That's the truth. So now you bring up the spin size. People have looked at that. The problem is not that there is not a correlation with survival. The problem is that there is not an independent correlation. In other words, the spleen size contribution is accounted for by many other things that are more objective. They don't depend on the subjective, oh, it's 10 centimeters, 15 centimeters, give me a break. It's, or do an MRI, come on, you're gonna do an MRI? Why did God give us hands, all right? So there, there is, there's always a place to do these things, but this is all a conspiracy to 
produce a revenue system, whether it is tests, whether it is an excuse to treat, all this, it's all about money. It's all about money. Hands are good enough for me to see whether I need to do something about this pain. The patient will tell me whether I need to do something. I don't need an MRI. Did the patient respond? The patient feels good, fine. Why do I care if the spleen shrunk or not, as long as it does not jive with how the patient is feeling? So in other words, the art of medicine is unfortunately slowly being eroded and it is becoming a more of a corporate industry with everything targeted towards revenue rather than simple, practical, cost-effective care. And that's true not only for myelofibrosis, but it's in everything. You see this in everything. So that's the answer to your question is, yeah, you can do it, but you already know what is bad and so forth. And if the spleen is big, then you might need to treat it, you need to treat it. The question is, why is it not in the in the <laughs> scoring system? Because it doesn't have an independent value, especially when you bring in the genetics into play. Yeah. But I'm going to push a little bit more on this. Then why do we use spleen volume as a response to the treatment? And why in all the clinical trials that led to the FDA approval of three different jack innovators, we use spleen volume response as an independent variable of response. Why did we use that? So when you have a good drug, you have to have an FDA approval, right? FDA approval, pre-committee meetings are gonna tell you what you need to show, okay? What you need to show in order for them to approve your drug. And they're gonna say, okay, we're going to require 35% because that roughly correlates with a 50% by palpable, okay? And they say, we need something objective. We're not going to believe you that the spleen shrunk because you felt it. So in order to approve your drug, you have to show that, okay? That's the story. The problem is, now everybody thinks that is a practically relevant tool a practically relevant measure that needs to be incorporated into routine practice. See, that's the problem. The problem is people don't have, more, many people don't have the time to think a little deeper because they have so many patients. So they're just going to do whatever they're told to do. But if you are a good doctor and if you just think about it, why do you need the volume. Why can't you just see with your hand and talking to the patient whether it is significant enough, enough to warrant treatment? And also then, again, use your hand and talk to the patient to see if there has been response. In routine clinical practice, there is absolutely no place for MRI or CT scan measurement of the spleen. Zero. Zero. I can see whether the patient is benefiting from the treatment by talking to them by using my hands and by looking the blood, the CBC and so forth. I hope I answered your question. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Taferi. One other question I had is we talked about primary myelofibrosis and how we can prognosticate. I also see a different scoring system for secondary myelofibrosis, which is myelofibrosis evolving from ET and polycythemia vera. 
using something called MySecM. Do you use that prognostic scoring system in deciding the treatment or Zero. do you not? Zero. No. I have never used See, the problem is we're very busy clinicians. We like to have just one. Okay. I don't need two, three. Now, here's the problem with MySec. Obviously, it got publication. Okay. Now there is this. Okay. Here's the problem. Number one, these are different diseases. Their mutation profile is different. For example, you take PV. It's all jacked to mutated. How can you lump post-PV and post-ET myelofibrosis? Their mutation are different. They're biologically different. Think about it. If you have PV, you're very unlikely to become anemic at the time you transfer into myelofibrosis because you're starting from high. But if you are ET, you'll be there faster. These are different. Now, if you were to tell me, how about a post-PV myelofibrosis risk model? Then I say, okay, maybe I can buy into it, okay? So the first step is give me post-PV separate from post-ET. Then show me that the current prognostic system that we have for PMF does not work. Show me that. Only then can I buy into that. Because if you think about it, if you look at MySec and MIPS-V2, most of them are shared. Anemia, emotional symptoms. And the other thing is MySec doesn't have genetic. They don't have cytogenetic. How can you not have a cytogenetic model in this age? AML, cytogenetics, number one. MDS, cytogenetics, number one. How can you not have cytogenetics in your risk model, number one? And then the mutations. We know these mutations and so forth. In fact, I don't know if you are well aware, but there has been some studies now on the MySec population showing that cytogenetics is important, that the mutations are important. So they are trying to catch up, trying to get into it. So when you have this, you first of all have to think, how can you lump things together? These are biologically different diseases. And number two, how is this different than what I have? Why can't I just use what I have? After all, why, why do I need these things? It's to tell me which patient I should take to transplant sooner than later. And in that sense, MIPS-V2 is more than enough, more than adequate. But by the way, at the end of the day, as I told you, even though I developed the MIPS-V2, okay, I'm telling you, you don't need that kind of complicated. Come on. If you are a clinician, when you see the patient, you know which patient needs to go to transplant. Just looking at the patient. Forget all this. So it's nicer if you can just somehow distill it down. That's why I came up with GIPS. I don't know if you know about the genetic. All I do is mutations and karyotype, and I can tell exactly. I don't need anything else. And the future is going to be molecularized. So if we can just capitalize on that, and concentrate on that and do not dilute our efforts going forward with bringing in all these things. And now you want to bring in the spleen size too. If we can just concentrate, <laughs> if we can just concentrate on the genetics, I think it will serve our purpose. Because what is our purpose? To identify those patients who need to go to transplant sooner than later. And then those where we can, all we can do is because without transplant, we cannot prolong life. All we can do 
is to address their quality of life. And that's that pretty much. Sounds good. <clears throat> so we will go on to the treatment now and stratified treatment. So for today's discussion, as we are focusing mainly on newly diagnosed primary myelofibrosis, so the patient that we discussed has mild cytopenias and also has some constitutional symptoms which are probably impacting her quality of life. So in this situation, how do you approach the treatment of these patients? Do you initiate a JAK inhibitor, for example, and which JAK inhibitor you choose? Can you walk us through your thought process regarding treatment once after you have done the initial evaluation? Absolutely. And I, I don't know if you if you are aware, but I've just published the 2023 20, update in myelofibrosis. And in there, I have provided a, a very nice algorithm on how you approach this, because I know exactly that is the thing that most clinicians are. They want to be walked through that. What do you do for what? All right, we said that if you have a high-risk disease, don't waste your time, go to transplant. If you don't have that, then the treatment would be to improve quality of life. And as we have a triad of quality of life offenders in this disease, anemia, big spleen, and constitutional symptoms, right? So. What you use depends on what the problem is and also the balance between toxicity and efficacy. That's what it is. So let me start with, before I, I go to your patient specifically, I will give you the general outline. If the problem, for example, is just anemia, okay, let's say the patient's spleen is not too bad, constitutional symptoms are not there, Okay, the patient is fine. The only problem is the hemoglobin is now nine, all right? And maybe a little bit of the fatigue might be secondary to that. So that's the only problem you have. Then I don't want to jump into JAK inhibitors for two reasons. They're notoriously immunosuppressive. You won't even respond to COVID vaccination if you're on that. It's just like rituximab. They're very immunosuppressive. And over a long period of time, that immunosuppression not only makes you vulnerable for opportunistic infections, but it might also change the milieu, the clone milieu, that it might actually allow clonal evolution. It might allow progression into acute leukemia. You don't know because it's not specific. You're suppressing the entire thing and you don't know you're changing the environment. So if you just have anemia, I like to go with the drugs I know that are simple, like thalidomide, danazole, things of that sort. Erythropoiesis stimulating agents, that's what I like to start with if the problem is just anemia. And for example, in your patient, there is anemia, you might think, or maybe the symptoms are secondary to that. You could always just start with thalidomide plus prednisone, 50 milligrams of thalidomide and 20 milligrams of prednisone, and just see what happens. I have several patients who've done extremely well with just this simple procedure, or give them danazole, right? Danazole may not be as good as pneumolatinib as you saw the recent, but it still works. There's still some anemia response. So that's what I do if it is just anemia. But now let's go to your patient, which has anemia but she also has big spleen, right? And she's got constitutional symptoms. So she's got the triad of quality of life offenders, okay? So in this patient, it is reasonable to consider JAK inhibitor therapy. 
because it's very difficult to treat constitutional symptoms with other drugs. The JAK inhibitors work quite well. But here, you also have, you also have big spleen and you have also anemia. So the question is, which one would you choose? I, hear, I think that's the question you have for me. So the question here is, which one of the four JAK inhibitors, three of them currently FDA approved, ruxolitinib, fedratinib, paclitinib, and one which is poised to be approved in June, momalatinib, you've got four. Of the four, which one is gentle on erythropoiesis? Which one could also help the anemia? Because all four help the spleen, all four help constitutional symptoms. You know, there might be different degrees, but the two that can potentially help at least at this point are momalatinib and pacritinib. Now, this doesn't mean that some patients with lower doses of ruxolitinib might not have a response to anemia. They might, they might, they might. So because of that, my choice would be in this particular instance, momalatinib. Why? Because I know it works as good, all right, on the spleen and symptoms as Ruxo, for example, you know, maybe a little different, but it also helps anemia. So that would be my first choice. And then you say, what about the side effect profile compared to Ruxolitinib? If it was just the side effect, I would have chosen Ruxolitinib because momalatinib-treated patients, about 20% get some neuropathy, like thalidomide-like neuropathy. If it was only that, therefore you have to keep that in mind Talk to the patient and say, by the way, you might get some peripheral neuropathy, mostly sensory, right? and let the patient tell you. So the question is, would you rather have response in anemia and, and risk that, or would you rather just try the ruxolitinib and just see how it goes? But in general, I would like to start with mamalatinib and monitor for neuropathy very closely. That's is what it I irreversible or reversible neuropathy? Very good question. Very good question. So now we have had, we've put in 100 patients on momolatinib 13 years ago, <laughs> okay? So we've had a time, you know, very long time. And therefore, we have been able to follow those patients with neuropathy as well. Unfortunately, as the 10-year survival on JAK inhibitor therapy is no more than 20%, and that only if you get transplanted. Therefore, not many people live long enough to tell us what the natural history of this momolatinib-associated neuropathy is. But we do have a couple of patients. In fact, we have a patient also who have been transplanted and lived a long time, and it was not reversible. In that particular patient, the patient still has some issues. It's like asking the question, is thalidomide-associated neuropathy reversible? Have you ever seen it being reversed? You haven't, right? I'm sure you've treated a lot of myeloma patients and whatever. And the question is, for some reason, these drug-associated neuropathies do not appear to be reversible. So the only way I can do it is, if I can sense that somebody's getting something, stop it right away, switch it. And whether or not this trick will work, you have to ask me five years from now. 
because I don't know. But at least that's what I would do. That's why how I interpret the information. Just for educational purposes, for our listeners, how momelotinib works in improving anemia? Why it is different from other jack inhibitors in helping with anemia? Every time something works, okay? And it appears to be true also for pancreatinib, okay? Every time something works, somebody's going to come up with a, a reason, an explanation, okay? Seriously. And if it doesn't work, then everybody forgets about it. And so now the assumed mechanism is that pancreatinib and momelatinib inhibit a receptor, a CRV1, on the cell surface that is important in SMAD signaling, S-M-A-D signaling. And it appears that upregulation of SMAD signaling is at the root of the problem in ineffective erythropoiesis or iron-restricted erythropoiesis, whatever way you call it. So if somehow you can alleviate that SMAD signaling, then you allow maturation and more effective erythropoiesis. That is what Luspatercept is supposed to do in refractory anemia with resideroblasts, okay? So that's what the calendar, that works, of course, as its GF trap, but this one works directly by inhibiting ACRV1. So that is, so basically the way I answer your question is you might alleviate iron-restricted erythropoiesis, okay? You might alleviate ineffective erythropoiesis. That's why we're doing a pilot study to see if it works in refractory anemia with ring syndroblast, if that is the way. So that is a putative. And then the pacritative people come to, and they say, by the way, we check this in vitro, and it is more potent. And by the way, it also inhibits IRAC1, whatever that is. See, in other words, once something works, everybody will find something. So I guess the question is, do I know for sure why? I don't know for sure why, but I can tell you what's in Google, but then you can Google it too. One question I wanted to ask regarding Jack inhibitor that can you comment on whether Jack inhibitor has any effect on the biology of disease, the bone marrow fibrosis, driver mutation allele frequency, or leukemic transformation? You already mentioned that it probably does not have an impact on overall survival, but does it have any impact on the biology of the disease? Zero. We have treated over 200 patients we started the treatment with ruxolutinib, fedratinib, momelatinib, and another one that is not currently being pursued, BMS drug. We have never documented any kind of cytogenetic response, any kind of bone marrow morphology response. Never. But obviously, you're going to read somebody saying, oh, the grade of fibrosis went from three to two. Yeah, which part of the bone did you biopsy, my friend? In other words, there's a lot of things ongoing. And oh, by the way, the JAK2, over time, if you stay for it for another five years, it was a little lower. Is that a good thing? Maybe you have another bad clone, which is overtaking the JAK2. It's much more complicated. It's like CML, all right? BCR able went from 80% to 60%. Are you going to be jumping up and down? Does that mean anything? Oh, you went to 30%. Does that mean anything? It disappeared. That means something. It disappeared and it stayed disappeared. 
See, the literature is so contaminated with all this truncated information that are all designed to make you happy and, and write the prescription for that drug and this and that. And instead of really make you think, what does that mean? Okay. So I have a PV patient and I put them on interferon and the JAK2 went from 80% to 20%. What does that mean? Let's, why don't we study it? See, that's the appropriate response. Rather than going around to say, oh, it could modify the natural history. The more appropriate the scientific response is, it's interesting. Let's look at this in a prospective controlled fashion to see if it means anything in terms of meaningful health outcome. That's what they're trying to sell you now, Ruxolotibib, even for patients with PV. Unless you don't like your patient, that would be the really bad reason to give any patient with PV Ruxolotibib, unless they are transitioning into post-PV myelofibrosis and you want to help their symptoms. No. The short answer to your question is there is nothing genetically documented that would suggest that there could be a modification of a natural history. By the way, if you have 100 CML patients, okay, and you give 50 of them hydroxyurea, and you get 50 nothing, who do you think will, be, will survive longer? The patients on, on hydrea will survive long because they're not going to die from priapism, okay? In other words, you're going to control them. Does it mean that you are biologically changing the disease? It doesn't mean that you're really prolonging survival in a manner that's biologically sensible. Just because you prevent death doesn't mean that you prolong survival. Totally, yeah. You've spoken a little bit about the different circumstances in which you'd pick ruxolitinib and or momolotinib. Are there particular circumstances or particular patients in whom fedratinib or pacritinib are preferential options? And if so, which sorts of patients? So with pacritinib, the FDA approval is for patients with platelet count below 50. Okay, That's the FDA approval. But you and I as oncologists use drugs every day as we see fit for our patients, not based on what the FDA indication is. Because every patient is different and you use drugs to improve the patients where it fits your patient, not fits NCCN guidelines or anything, okay? It works as your individual patient. So because it is approved by FDA for this and because everybody's a little scared with platelet counts below 50, it is reasonable to try pacritinib especially now that we're learning that it might also help anemia, okay? Because it also inhibits that. Now, here's the thing with pacritinib. If you're going to use pacritinib, please use 100 milligram twice a day, not 200 milligram twice a day. Start to, nobody tolerates 200 twice a day. Okay? Everybody, nausea, diarrhea, it's a hard drug. It's a hard drug, okay? So, Try some of the pharmaceutical people that have talked to me when I bring this up. They said, You can just give them Imodium. I don't like to treat the side effect of one drug with another drug. Okay. I don't. So start with 100 twice. And by the way, for anemia, the concentration that is needed to inhibit the CRV1 is actually much lower than the concentration you need or the concentration you have with a 200 twice a day. 
So therefore you can actually help the anemia with a lower dose and have it tolerated. So that in, in those patients with thrombocytopenia, I use pacritinib at 100 milligram twice a day. Now, you brought fedratinib, okay? Fedratinib comes into play when somebody is ruxolutinib resistant, right? And they said that a third of patients might respond. So we looked at it because we didn't believe it. We tried Fedrat. We have all these patients. We didn't see that. So we looked at real-world study, and we published this. I'm sure you've looked at it. It was published in the British Journal of Hematology. And the question is here. We looked at it, and number one, we wanted to see, really, do a third of patients respond to that? The answer is no. It was more like 18 20%, okay? But we didn't stop there. And then we said, who responded? And then we looked at how the patient failed the ruxolutinib. If your patient was already on 20 milligrams twice a day of ruxolutinib, which is a good dose, right? A good dose. Nobody responded. So if the patient failed 20 milligrams, meaning they're truly refractory, nobody responded with a pedratinib. But if they were on five twice a day, okay, and then you switch them, and then of course, some people responded. But here's a problem. What is response mean? So you get a shrinkage of your spleen from 20 centimeters to 50 centimeters, but now you have anemia and your platelets are down the drain. Is that response? That's the problem with pedratinib. So therefore, the way I look at this at these things is when I have a ruxolutinib failure, I first make sure that the dose, they're getting the right dose, 20 milligrams twice a day, unless they're intolerant. And then if that is not the case, then I ask, why did you fail? If you failed, it's because of low platelets, low, low platelets, go pacritinib. Why did you fail? If it is anemia, anemia, go momolatinib. Why did you fail? Well, the splinters wouldn't budge. Then maybe you can try fedratinib. Great. That's a really helpful framework for thinking about the different roles of the JAK inhibitors. Now, we could spend an entire hour, I'm sure, or more talking about the role of allogeneic transplantation in myelofibrosis. I, I wonder if it is among the most difficult challenges, uh, difficult decisions for hematologists to make throughout hematology about when and whether to transplant in myelofibrosis. But we do want to get a taste of how you think about it. And one of the reasons for that is that obviously patients with myelofibrosis can have can be challenging to transplant, can have challenging transplant outcomes, and it can be hard to pick the right window for transplant. I want to ask, what do you think about, how do you think about approaching when and whether to transplant patients in myelofibrosis? I'm very happy you asked this question. You remember CML, right? Do you transplant anybody on CML nowadays? Very rarely. Very good. You're too young, but I'm old enough when there was no Glivec and there was no interferon. That was the only way a patient can survive. Everybody was getting transplanted, right? And we didn't think once or twice about it. We did it. But then we got a drug that biologically targets the mutation and puts patients into molecular remission. And then we switched. I want you to think about it. We're in the same way with myelofibrosis now, if you think about it. 
every drug we have is like hydroxyurea for CNR. Every drug makes you feel better, shrinks the spleen, da 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 but it does not change the natural history of the disease. People are still gonna die, okay? Median survival, four years. And depending on risk, okay? Almost everybody's gonna die within five years. Therefore, if you think of myelofibrils as CML, then you would like to transplant everyone at this point. There's no reason not to. There's no reason not to. Therefore, when I see a patient, Everybody's going to be transplanted. That's how I look. My mind works right now. My mind works. Okay. And then the only question I ask is, it's not about whether or not I'm going to transplant this patient. Okay. They're going to be transplanted. The question is when. Okay. So if the patient is very low risk, as I told you, type 1 color, favorable karyotype, no high risk mutations, looking good, I got time to play. I don't need to rush it. <clears throat> I don't need to interrupt the patient's life now. <clears throat> I can transplant until age 76, okay? So I take my time. If I feel like the patient have at least a 50% survival at five years, that's what I use, a 50% survival probability at five years. If the patient's got that, then I say I got time to play, I will postpone it. But if the patient's five-year survival is below 50%, then it's gonna be transplant all the way, period. Okay, now, question is once you've decided, what about all the issues, okay? Is the patient young enough? It doesn't matter. Now there has been several studies, believe it or not, in the huge European registry study, over 4,000 patients, transplanted patients with myelofibrosis, the median age was 60, my friend. 60, that was the median age. And it was 50, 10 years ago. So over time, people are transplanting older and older patients. Another thing, so now nobody's too old. What about donor availability? Guess what? 10 years ago, alternative donors, maybe 20, maybe 30%. Now alternative donors, the majority are getting matched unrelated transplant, and more and more people are getting haploidentical. And guess what? If you have a choice between a young donor that is matched but unrelated or haploidentical, a young, versus somebody your age, okay, your brother, your sister that are HLA matched, sibling, guess what the outcome is better for? A young matched unrelated. So in other words, Donor availability is becoming less and less important. Edge is becoming less and less of a restriction. Now, the only thing that we need to work on is having a national donor bone registry population of minorities to go up. We just published a paper in advances in blood advances that showed that even though the overall outcome of African-American patients with myelofibrosis is similar to their Caucasian counterparts. The post-transplant survival was worse because most of our African-American patients, although the numbers are very small here, okay, very small, had to do haploidentical because they can't find match unrelated. That is something that we can work on. But otherwise, 
transplant is a way to go. Don't be afraid. Get them hooked with a transplanter as soon as you can and work together. And now with post-transplant cytoxan infusion, ruxolutinib available for graft versus disease, it's becoming less and less scary to, to refer the patients into transplant. So, yeah, so I think just last couple of questions, Dr. Taferi. I know we are running out of time. No but one question is about new drugs in primary myelofibrosis. I know you published in 2015 about imtilistat in this particular disease, and we haven't seen anything since then. I think this was one of few, very few therapies which actually reverse the fibrosis. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on this drug. And thank do you. we see this thank drug you for in the future? Thank you. Thank you so much for asking that question. As you know that I've published this in NEGM, actually, because we saw something very interesting. But if you read the article, you will know that the drug worked in a molecularly defined population, which is a small number of patients. In patients with ring sideroblast. Interestingly, I, I discovered that because I was just looking, trying to understand why. And finally, we've figured out that there's a patient with U2F1 mutations, patients that do not have ASXL1 mutations that responded quite well. Okay. Now, the company took this information and that's why they expanded it into patients with refractory anemia with ring sideroblast. Okay. And that's where they're pushing now. So we had a meeting in New York about, I don't know, 10 years ago with a company, and they wanted to do this large phase three study. And I told them, no, you want your drug to fail? This is an interesting drug. This is not a spleen drug, my friends, okay? You're not going to win by measuring spleen here. You have to go to the specific patient population that have got that specific mutation profile, okay? And then show you can make them transfusion independent, make them survive longer. That's what you need to do. I told them that. I, we were in New York. I remember that very vividly. They poo-pooed that because they said everybody is getting a spleen response. We need a spleen volume response and our market is going to be bigger if we go after everybody and so forth. That was my divorce. That was my divorce because I knew that wasn't going to work. It's not a spleen drug. This drug is a very interesting drug. Use it appropriately. So now the only thing that they have is a refractory anemia where the molecular profile is suitable. So it might get approved for that, but not necessarily for myelofibrosis because they approached it in a manner that is completely nonsense because nobody without this responded and trying to get consensus response tool like spleen in order to get so that everybody will take it and maybe 1% will respond and they, at least the market. It was not market friendly. My advice to them was not market friendly. So what else is new? And that's exactly what happened with pomalidomide. I did the pomalidomide study with, with the company. I won't name the companies here. It's the same thing. If it didn't work, it didn't work, but there were patients that worked. But no, they're not interested. The companies are interested in a huge market. They're not interested in looking at them. They fail. See, they're not interested in the science. 
They're interested at the end of the day, how much revenue you can get. It's the same thing with hypomethylating agents and MDS. They're making tons and billions of money. But doing what? Maybe you get a little bit, uh, two months, three months, six months more to live and then you get some remissions. I think you can get the same thing with Lodos Saitaravi, okay? There's a really absolutely nothing. You, you can absolutely get, but you can make so much money by doing these things and so forth and so forth. And that's the way it is. That's the way it is. One last practical question, Dr. Tafik, and we can close. This is something I encounter in clinic, especially evaluating my younger patients with myelofibrosis. And the first question they ask me in the clinic, is this hereditary? Is, is this something I need to be tested for, given a younger age of presentation? Do you encounter this question and do you do any kind of workup to further evaluate? I know there is some data about JAK246 by one haplotype and third polymorphism and all those things. But do you do any kind of workup or do you do any genetic counseling for these subset of patients? This is a question that every cancer doctor faces with their patients. So not only myelofibrosis, everything. It's MDS, it's acute leukemia. You know, could there be a predisposition allele and this and that and this and that. This is what I tell my patients. It might not be right, it might not be wrong. This is what I tell my patients. I tell them at this point, there is not a reliable marker. That tells me whether your cousins or your brothers or your children are at risk. I do not have a reliable marker, number one. Number two, even if I had a reliable marker, okay, the question becomes, what am I going to do with it? Okay. It's not like breast cancer where you could, you know, you have a mutation and therefore you go and do prophylactic mastectomy. You know, you're not going to do prophylactic transplant or you're not going to stop treatment. Are you going to follow them closely? What does follow them closely mean, by my friend? What does that mean, by the way? Huh? Oh, we're going to monitor them carefully. Oh, okay. Very good. Very profound here. The thing is, I tell them at this point, there's really nothing to suggest that I screen you and don't do something about it. That's the way I answer. Thanks a lot, Dr. Taferi, for this, for your time and the scintillating discussion. I know three of us learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners also are going to like our discussion. And we look forward to having you again on our podcast in the future to discuss about career development as well as uh, they're discussing about other myeloproliferative neoplasms. It's my pleasure. And thank you, everybody. Ed, Raj, Ashwin, everybody. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so yeah. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.